the context of our passage this morning is that some in the Corinthian church were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in a city named Corinth, and some of those Christians were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. So Paul is writing, and in this chapter, he's particularly focusing in on this thing that they're saying. And he reasons with them. And what we're looking at today is a section of this chapter, not the whole thing, but 1 Corinthians 15, particularly verses 12 through 20, which contains, I think, the the core of Paul's reasoning with the Corinthians. So he begins by saying, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? of the dead. In other words, if there were brothers and sisters here in this church who said there is no resurrection from the dead. Being a Christian is a good thing. It's the right way to live. But when we die, we die. That's it. We go into the ground. People could look at us and say, but the Christian message is that Christ died and rose again. And so if you say that there is no resurrection from the dead... How is that consistent with this message that Christ has been raised from the dead? If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? He goes on in verse 13 to say, Because if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If the nature of things is that nobody rises from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then in verse 14 he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He goes over, he goes on to say, over in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul's reasoning with the Corinthians. He's reasoning. He's saying, look, if Christ has been raised, then you can't say that resurrection is out of the question a priori. And if resurrection is out of the question a priori, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Let's think about those things a little bit more. If Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then the preaching of the gospel is useless. It's not weakened. It's utterly useless. It's rendered utterly useless. If Christ has not been raised, then Christianity is not a little bit less than we might wish it would be. Christianity is utter folly. If Christ has not been raised, the the preaching of the gospel is a pure, complete, total waste of time. Entirely. 
There's, there's no middle ground here. If Christ has not been raised, it is completely worthless to preach the gospel. Utterly worthless. In fact, more than that, Paul says in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if Christ has not been raised from the dead, not only is Christian preaching utterly useless, but Christian preaching is actually evil. It's deceptive. Christian preaching is wicked. It's to be abhorred. It's to be scorned. If Christ has not been raised, then some of the most evil people in the world are Christian preachers. Because they're telling lies about who you are. About who God is. About the nature of your relationship to God. Some of the most important questions in life you are being misled on. If you're listening to a Christian preacher, but Christ has not been raised. Paul, who's writing this letter, all of the apostles, the disciples, the apostles were just Jesus' disciples. Those who were taught by Jesus, those to whom Jesus entrusted the work of telling others about Him, Specifically, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His coming return. That's who the apostles were. All of them, all of them, wasted their lives entirely if Christ has not been raised. I can't rattle off to you exactly how each one of them met their end, but extra-biblical sources have it that 11 out of the twelve perished shall we say prematurely that's not exactly right because they perished when and how God had planned for them to perish but they were killed they were martyred and John was exiled on Patmos exiled on an island so he's the sole exception all of these guys though most of these guys all of these guys suffered and most of them died for something that, they, that wasn't worth dying for. They wasted their lives and they suffered uselessly. There was really no point to their suffering. It was senseless and purposeless. Worse than that, if Christ was not raised, all of those men were liars because they proclaimed that Christ was raised. Either liars or they were deceived. But in any case, they were misrepresenting God, so they were, in any case, spreading untruths or spreading lies. Even if you spread something that's not true, like a meme on Facebook before you fact-check it, you may not intentionally be lying, but you're not telling the truth. So, at, at best, these guys were unintentionally propagating something that wasn't true, but at worst, they were liars. And because some of them claimed to see, well, actually all of those original ones claimed to see the risen Christ, and Paul claimed to see the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, all of them, by necessity, had to be liars. 
because they claimed to see the risen Christ. So either they were deceived about that or they were lying about that. Right. But what they called people to was to likewise stake their lives on the truth that Christ had been raised. What they called people to was to reorient their whole lives around this person called Jesus. To live their whole lives worshipping this person called Jesus. To spend their whole lives obeying the laws that Jesus gave through the his teaching throughout his earthly ministry, which really was just a recapitulation and a rearticulation of the moral law, which has bound all people from the beginning of creation. To obey this one, to live their lives for this one, to seek not their own glory, that they might be remembered, but to seek the glory of Christ. To seek not their security, but to seek even to lay down their lives. To give everything away, to sell everything, to hold lightly to everything, to hold loosely to everything. In order that Christ would be known, that Christ would be believed on, that Christ would receive the worship that He's due all the way to the ends of the earth. This is the Apostles' message. They said that Jesus said... Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So they claim that Jesus deserves worship from all peoples everywhere. And they called all the people that they preached to to respond with worship and to respond with laying down their own lives to continue to propagate the message. So the apostles and all who took them up on that challenge and began in turn preaching to others and propagating this message to others, all of them wasted their lives. All of them wasted their lives. At best, they were deceived. At worst, they were liars. But all of them wasted their lives. They died for something that was not worth dying for. They died for a lie. And this goes all the way back. You could trace this all the way back to Jesus Himself, who if He was not raised, is the author of lies. The author of this big lie. The author of this big waste of time. Because He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, I lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. Jesus led people to believe, He led His disciples to believe that there was life after death and that He could get them there. So the apostles and everyone that they entrusted the message to who in turn preached to others, 
we're at best deceived, we're at worst liars. And all of this was built actually on the teaching of Jesus Himself. And we know that Jesus taught these things. For sure. That's a historical fact. Whether you believe the Bible or not, we know that Jesus taught these things. It's as, it's as, sure, it's as sure as any historical document. How do we know that Caesar was uh, you know, the emperor of Rome? How do we know that this happened, that happened? How do we know all these things? Because historical documents tell us. We know for sure that Jesus said these things. So Jesus was either telling the truth or he was not telling the truth. Those are our only options. And if Christ was not raised, then he was not telling the truth. Which means that everybody predicated their lives on this lie that Jesus told. And this goes back to C.S. Lewis's famous quote. He was either the Lord, whom he claimed to be. He either was everything he said he was. Or he was a liar. He was intentionally deceiving everybody. In which case, he's not a respectable and admirable historical figure. He's actually a very evil historical figure who has caused a lot of difficulty, to say the least, for many people throughout the ages. Or Jesus was a lunatic. In which case, again, he's not worthy of our adoration and our praise, but our pity. And everybody who has staked their lives on this lunatic is, has also wasted their life. So this is Paul's logic here. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? It's the very foundation of the Christian message. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So preachers are useless people wasting their lives, blowing a lot of hot air. There's actually, there's actually literally less than no point to preachers. It's actually the society would be better off without preachers. It's a, it, it actually is the case that it would be better if Paul had not lived because Paul was wildly successful in spreading this untrue message. It would actually just be better if he had never come around because he just made the world worse. See? It would actually just be better if all these Christian preachers throughout the ages had not kept repeating this deceptive and hollow message. And it would actually be better if I wasn't here, if all the other pastors in Barbados were not here propagating this utterly useless, in fact, even deceptive message. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, not only is the preaching useless, but he says, your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile. In vain is in verse 14. Futile is in verse 17. Your faith, Christians, brothers and sisters here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is in vain. There's literally no point to what you're doing. There's actually no point for you to be here in church this morning. It's not, it's not, well, I like the way it makes me feel. 
Well, there's, there's lots of other things you could do that I'm sure would make you feel nice too. Right? There's lots of things in this world that can make somebody feel nice. Don't waste your time with this nonsense if Christ has not been raised. Why would you bother to come to church if Christ has not been raised? It's, it's pointless. It's worthless. And the lives of all Christians throughout the ages who have, which have sprung up and which have been cut down, again, many of them martyred, killed. People have lived difficult lives. I've even baptized a woman in Canada who was basically cut off from her family because she became a Christian. What would be the point of that? If Christ had not been raised, she got cut off from her family for no reason. There was no point. Why do you bother to have conflict with your unbelieving family members, with your unbelieving friends, with unbelieving coworkers? Why do you why do you bother to navigate the tension that comes from being in relationship with people who have radically different, a radically different worldview from you? Why do you bother to navigate that? Why do you bother to try to follow the directions of Scripture rather than just go with the flow in situations where you're with unbelievers and they want you to do something that's not right or to compromise your beliefs so they don't understand why you're doing a certain thing. Why do you take a stand for a principle or a truth if Christ has not been raised? Then this whole book is not true. The, the, the fundamental central truth in this book is that Christ has been raised. So, there literally is no point. This whole thing has been an exercise in futility ever since Jesus died on the cross outside of Jerusalem, which again is an indisputable historical fact. Ever since that happened, everything that has followed since in the name of Christianity has been a waste. And if... If, if everything that you, do, that you do in the name of Christianity and everything that I do in the name of Christianity has been a waste, and you take your faith pretty seriously, that basically means your life has been a waste. Certainly, certainly most of your life has been a waste. If you've been in church week after week after week after week and you've spent so many hours reading this book, and you've tried to reorient your priorities, reorient your thinking around all of these things, you've spent so much effort. I think, I think basically it amounts to your life being a waste. We don't, I, think, I don't think we have to temper that too much. It's like, well, I still have the odd time when I'm not doing Christian things or thinking, it's like, well, for, for those of us who are really serious about the Christian faith, it basically means your life's a waste. Which means, this is Paul's logic, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. (coughs) That's unassailable logic. If Christ hasn't been raised, I'm wasting my breath, you're wasting your time, not only today, but every week that we gather, it really is just this whole scheme we call Christianity is just a big waste. 
And that means that we have hope in this life only. And so if we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. So, you've you got to think from the perspective of an unbeliever. They think that we have hope in this life only. They, won't, they probably won't say that to you. If, you. if you frame it so starkly and go to them with the logic of this chapter, if you go to them with the logic of this chapter and say, well, listen, Paul is, Paul is here saying that if Christ has not been raised, then my pastor is a waste of a life, and I've wasted my life, and that I don't have hope that extends beyond this life. That's what, it, that's what the Bible teaches me. Do you agree with that? Your, your unbelieving friends, family members, co-workers will probably start to squirm because they don't want to tell you it so bluntly. Right? Do you, do you, if you ask someone, do you think I'm wasting my life? Nobody likes to be on the receiving end of that question. Right? Do, you, do you really think that going to church is, is worse than useless? Like it's actually a really big deception? And worse than a complete waste of time, it's actually just, it's actually just a blight on society? Do you really think that? Do you think that I have, I have no hope, I'm just going to die like everybody else and I'm just, I have this fantasy of being resurrected? And nobody likes to be asked these questions, but at the end of the day, the, the logic is very clear. It's unassailable logic, and, and the unbeliever has to admit that's their perspective on us. Right? And we have to admit that's true. If we grant the truth of the premise that Christ has not been raised, then we have to, we have to admit that Paul's logic is convincing here in this passage. If Christ has not been raised, let's just all go home and cancel church tonight, and we can still be friends, but let's rally around something else other than the resurrected Christ. Right? We are of all people most to be pitied. All the people that have lived from Jesus' death until this day, reorienting their lives, reprioritizing their lives, telling others about Jesus, suffering in various ways, social exclusion, economic sanctions, uh, persecution, jail time, physical suffering all of it has been a waste and even those who have not suffered greatly have missed out on a lot of what would be otherwise legitimate things to enjoy and what would otherwise uh, be pleasant things anytime you've said no to getting together with others on a Sunday because your priority is to be in church well it's pitiable that you missed out on a good opportunity to get together, whether a family get together, whether getting together with your friends, whatever. Anytime that you, you said no to going to a party or hanging out with some friends, spending some time, it's pitiable that you missed out on that. It's too bad that you wasted your time going to church or being with other Christians instead of that. Or It's pitiable that you lost out on all of the, the explicitly sinful pleasures that are around us because if if, there, if Christ has not been raised this book is not true which means they're actually not sinful and if they're actually not sinful then why not enjoy them right even the Bible says that sin is pleasurable 
Hebrews tells us that. It says it's fleeting pleasure, but it does tell us that sin is pleasurable. So if this book is not true, then what we think of as being sinful is not actually sinful. It's just pleasure that we could have otherwise enjoyed, but we lost out on it because we were wasting our time being Christians. Right? This is Paul's logic here. This is the way he reasons with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> but then, but then, in verse 20, he says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Everything that I just said would be the natural consequence if Christ had not been raised. If Christ had not been raised, we might as well go along with everybody else and say as they do, as he says later on in the chapter, verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If Christ had not been raised, we may as well go along with all of that. But in fact, Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, and indeed He has, then that turns this whole thing on its head. That turns the logic completely on its head. And it begins to work the other way. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want to read you a lengthy excerpt here from Charles Hodges' commentary on 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. He says this. It may be safely asserted that the resurrection of Christ is at once the most important and the best authenticated fact in the history of the world. True. True point. Because we're going to take ancient historical documents at face value on everything else. We're going to take eyewitness accounts at face value on everything else. We're going to take plausibility at face value, probability at face value on everything else. Think about it. He gives, he goes on, and this is, this is the lengthy quote. He goes on and gives 10 reasons why it's completely rational to believe that Christ rose from the dead. One, it was predicted in the Old Testament. Two, it was foretold by Christ himself. Three, it was a fact admitting of easy verification. In other words, it wasn't like, I've been healed of a pain in my kidney. No one can verify that. But he's not in the tomb anymore. Well, where's his body? It was a fact admitting of easy verification. We saw him. Look, he's over there. Go look at him. He's standing right there. It was a fact admitting of easy verification. Abundant, suitable, and frequently repeated evidence was afforded of its actual occurrence. Sorry, I'm not five. I've been rambling them all together. The witnesses to the fact that Christ was seen alive after his death upon the cross were numerous, competent, and on every account worthy of confidence. Even this passage that we have before us here today says that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6. And he goes on and says, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep just means died. So what he's saying is, listen, there's almost 500 people who at the same time all saw him. And most of those people are still living. You could just go talk to them. If something happened in front of like 500 people, that's pretty reasonable. Six, 
Their sincerity of conviction was proved by the sacrifices, even that of life, which their testimony entailed upon them. Chuck Colson said that Watergate convinced him of the truth of the resurrection because he said there was this thing that embroiled some of the most powerful and important people in the world, but within a few weeks, they couldn't keep the lie any longer. They couldn't hold the lie together more than a few weeks. Right? But look at, look at these guys. They went and died for this. Right? They went and died. Like at the point where someone holds a, a, a I was going to say a gun to your head, but a sword to your throat or starts to nail you to a cross or something like this, wouldn't you be like, no, I'm just kidding. It's not true. You know, I'll say, I'll say what I have to say. Why would you go on? Think about it. Why would you go on and die for something that you know to be false? And think about it. The Bible even tells us that all of these guys ran the night that Jesus was arrested. <coughs> and then after the crucifixion, they went and hid themselves in a locked room. So the Bible isn't like, you know, here's, here's Rambo, and here's Jean-Claude Van Damme, and here's, all, you know, here's Rocky Balboa, and all these tough guys, right? Here's Bruce Willis. All these guys, these tough guys, they came to arrest Jesus, and all these guys fought because they had courage. You know, and then after, they fought again, and they kept testifying. No, what you see is actually, it's like everybody ran. And then everybody locked themselves in a room. And then Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. And then they went and courageously said that Jesus rose from the dead. And they even died themselves. Just think about that. What could explain that kind of transformation? What could make a man who ran when his friend was going to be executed, all of a sudden come back and be ready to die boldly? What would get him over that fear of death? Well, how about resurrection? Because it doesn't matter if you kill me, I'm going to come back to life. When Christ comes again, I'm going to rise. So, it doesn't matter if you kill me. And as Jesus said, don't fear people who can only kill the body. Right? All you can do to me is kill my body. All you can do is kill my body. Think about that. That's the kind of courage that resurrection puts in respect. So this is, a, I guess, a notated quotation of Charles Hodge. Now I'm at number seven. Their testimony was confirmed by God bearing witness together with them in signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. Again, it's not like these guys just said a whole bunch of things and nothing else happened. They went out and people were healed. People were healed of diseases. The Holy Spirit worked together with them with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gave them gifts which confirmed their message, which corroborated their message. Number eight, that testimony of the Spirit is continued to the present time and granted to all the true children of God for the Spirit bears witness to the truth in heart, in the heart and conscience. <coughs> the Holy Spirit bears witness to me that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit bears witness to you that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And is the, is the testimony of God himself less reliable than the testimony of another person? Would you believe it more if another person told you that Jesus rose from the dead than if God himself, by his spirit, told you that Jesus rose from the dead? Nine, the fact of Christ's resurrection has been commemorated by a religious observance of the first day of the week from its occurrence to the present time. What accounted for the fact that all of a sudden all of these Jews and all of these new Christians who came from all sorts of different backgrounds all of a sudden began worshiping on a Sunday? Why did they all start calling it the Lord's Day? The account that the Bible gives us is because the Lord rose on that day and they commemorate His resurrection every Sunday. Number 10. The effects produced by His Gospel and the change to which it has affected the state and the change which it has affected in the state of the world admit of no other rational solution than the truth of His death and subsequent resurrection. The Christian church is His monument. All believers are His witnesses. So think about that. If... If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then how could the Christian church have had such success? Who, who I don't know who we're going to say it would be the best public relations, would form the best public relations committee. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know the industry well enough. But if you handpick 12 of the best PR experts in the world, and you paid them gargantuan sums of money to convince everybody that you were God and that everybody should obey you and worship you and trust that when they die you're going to bring them back from the dead and that one day you're returning to judge the living and the dead okay, if you take the best most powerful PR people with, with resources at their disposal the right channels of marketing so on and so forth, major news networks, etc., etc. And you try to pull off something like that, and it's not going to happen. Let's be honest, that's not, that's not good. But what you find is that Jesus was dealing with 12 minus 1, Judas, basically nobody's. At the time of his resurrection, when he appeared to them at the mountain and gave them the Great Commission, Paul wasn't there, Matthias wasn't there, so we're dealing with 11 basic, basically nobles. And Jesus basically tells them exactly what I just told you you would say about yourself. Jesus told them, I deserve the worship of all nations, I deserve the obedience of all nations. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. I forgot that part. You've got to tell your marketing experts to convince everybody that you will be with them in spirit as they go about their daily lives. Right? Jesus came and told 11 basic nobodies to go do that, to tell people that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And then the only way to be spared from the wrath of God is to rest their souls entirely in Him. Again, that admits of no other rational solution than the truth of His death and subsequent resurrection. So, as Hodge said, 
it may be safely asserted that the resurrection of Christ is at once the most important, because it changes everything one way or the other, whether it did happen or didn't happen. For Christians, it changes everything, or for non-Christians, it changes everything, whether Christ rose from the dead or not. And it is the best authenticated fact in the history of the world. Why, why are we going to believe that Alexander the Great invaded such and such a city with far less historical evidence? Why are we going to believe that so-and-so wrote such and such a piece of literature with far less historical evidence? Why are we going to believe that such and such a thing happened with far less historical evidence? There's so much historical evidence for the resurrection. <clears throat> What we see is that the fallen nature is doing what it always does, as it articulated in Romans chapter 1, it suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. We have our reasons for not wanting to believe. Because if we reckon with the truth, it does change everything. And it makes demands on our lives. So fundamentally, the problem is not the lack of evidence. The fundamental problem with unbelievers is not, well, they just don't know any better. If I could stack up all this evidence, then they would believe. It's not the way it works. The unbeliever suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Until they're willing to listen to God's voice in the Scriptures. Until they're willing to yield to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Calling them through the proclamation of the Gospel. It will not believe. But it is well authenticated. So in fact, Christ has been raised. Like I said, that turns everything we were saying at the beginning exactly around. Completely on its head. Everything that I said at the beginning is untrue and its opposite is true. That's also the logic of this passage, which again is unassailable. If Christ has been raised, then preachers are not preaching in vain, and they are not deceptive, but preaching of this message that Christ Jesus came into this world because we could not save ourselves. We have all, like sheep, gone astray, the Bible tells us. We have turned everyone to his own way, her own way. We cannot, as it were, unbalance the scales of justice by doing more good things than bad things so that we can outweigh the bad things and curry God's favor. Being a sinner is like getting the first question wrong on the test and then answering however many else right or being, pardon me, being a, a sinner is like that, answering the first question wrong, and no matter how many else we get right, we're still not going to get a perfect score. And God demands a perfect score because He's holy. So there's literally nothing. It's like even if you answer the last, all the rest of the questions right, but you got the first question wrong, your score is still less than perfect. You broke one law, you broke them all. That's what James tells us. Whoever stumbles at one point has become accountable for the whole law. So maybe you didn't murder, but you committed adultery. Maybe you didn't commit adultery, but you stole. 
And when you realize that all of these commandments penetrate right down even to the attitudes of our hearts, even having a lustful thought or an unjustly angry thought towards somebody is all adultery or murder. When you realize this, you realize we could not save ourselves, but Jesus came into this world. The Son of God took on flesh, became one of us, He was born under the law, Galatians 4.4 tells us, in order to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He came to live a law-keeping life in place of our law-breaking. When He died on the cross, He bore the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So we receive His righteousness as a gift, and He takes the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And He did not stay dead, but Romans 4.25 tells us He was raised for our justification. Which among other things means that He was raised to show that God had counted His payment of our debt sufficient and acceptable. There was no longer any need for Him to stay dead because God's wrath had been satisfied. This punishment that we deserved had been borne fully, totally, in its entirety. There was no need for him to stay dead and so he was raised. Christian preachers who are preaching this are not wasting our breath. It's a true message. It's an important message. It's a message that all of us need to recognize, need to listen to, need to accept, and need to reorient our whole lives around. The right response to that true historical narrative that I just gave you the right response to that is to repent and believe. That's the way the Bible talks about it. Repent is to turn around. It's as if we're walking away from God, away from what He commands us to do, away from what is right, away from what is good, away from love towards Him, away from communion with Him, towards sin. And to repent is to turn around, back towards God to what He wants, to what is right, to what is good, toward communion with Him, toward love toward Him, and away from sin. Entering into a new relationship where we trust Him. We rest our whole souls upon Him. It's a reprioritization of our lives that's involved in the turning. Our energy, our money, our time, all of these things get reprioritized when we repent. We turn toward Jesus. This is the right response. This is the response that we all need to make to these historical truths. That Christ lived, that Christ died, that Christ rose again. That's the right response. Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Turn and believe. Change your way of life. Reorient your way of life and rest your soul entirely upon Christ Jesus. That's a true and important message. It's not vain preaching, it's true preaching. It's not deceptive preaching, it's true preaching. It's not vain and deceptive, it's important. And in contrast to futile and vain faith then, in contrast to believers wasting their lives, all of those who suffered rejection from their family, rejection from their friends, Persecution of various sorts, mocking, ridicule, jail time, physical suffering, even death. Those who went through their lives living for Christ. 
living for His glory, living to know Him, to walk with Him, to enjoy communion with Him, trusting in this book, trying to obey what this book says we should do, trying to avoid the things that this book says we shouldn't do, trying to please Jesus, to honor Jesus, to help everyone around see how great Jesus is, to encourage everyone to trust Jesus. They weren't wasting their lives. That's what it means if Christ has been raised from the dead. They were not wasting their lives. They lived worthwhile lives. Hebrews 11 talks about them. Those who were of faith. It goes on to talk about, after naming a number of specific people, he says, I couldn't tell you about everybody. And he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, no matter how we fare in this life, whether we're conquering kingdoms or whether we're being sawn in two, the, the, the life of faith is a worthwhile life. You're not wasting your time. Whatever befalls you here, you're not wasting your time because, in fact, Christ has been raised. But what that does, right? And here's the, here's the awkward and unsettling truth for non-Christians. If, in fact, Christ has been raised, but you're not trusting in Him, you're not walking with Him, you haven't repented of your sins. You haven't turned away from your sins. You're wasting your life. This is not purposeful. It's going to end in death, decay, punishment, hell. It's not going anywhere. It's fleeting. It's vaporous. If Christ has not been raised, Christians are wasting their lives. But if Christ has been raised, non-Christians are spending their lives badly, are spending their lives poorly. Non-Christians then have hope only in this life and are of all men most to be pitied. See, if Christ has been raised, it turns everything on its head. Non-Christians have hope in this life only. Sure, maybe some good times, some fun here and there. But in the end, everybody grows old, everybody dies, and everybody stands before the risen Christ to give an account for their lives. And those who are not in Christ Jesus don't have any hope for that day. They're going to stand there and stammer and stutter about how they tried their best to be a good person. 
about how they didn't do anything that was really, really bad, etc., etc. They're going to be held to account to by the holy standard of God's law. And they're going to fall short. So the fact that Christ has been raised actually turns everything on its head. It says that we Christians don't have hope for this life only. But we have hope for eternity. Christ Jesus will carry us over the threshold. We sang earlier, across the Jordan to Canaan's side. We have hope on the other side of the Jordan. We have hope that will last and will resound into eternity. We don't have hope in this life only, which means we are not actually to be pitied, but in a sense to be envied. And yet there's actually no need for unbelievers to stay on the outside looking in and envy. Because Jesus' invitation is to come one and come all. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever believes in the Son of God will not perish, but have everlasting life. So there's actually no need for unbelievers to stand on the outside realizing that they have hope in this life only but we have hope for eternity and yet remain on the outside looking in. To the unbeliever the invitation is come in. Come in. Get get your share of this hope. Christ has been raised. Christians are not wasting our lives. This is a true and vital and important message and we're spending our lives well. And we are a people to be envied because our hope gets us across the Jordan River and into Canaan, across death and into eternity. Come in and enjoy that hope with us. Don't stand on the outside. Come in. Come in. Put your hope along with ours where it ought to be, in Christ alone. Everyone else, every other religious teacher, every other religious figure, every other so-called God is either a, a figment of the imagination or is dead and rotting in a grave somewhere. Jesus alone has risen. Jesus alone has the keys to death and hell. Jesus alone has conquered. Jesus alone is worthy of our worship and trust. In fact, Christ has been raised. And so the preaching of the gospel is true and important. Christ, in fact, has been raised. And so Christians have a worthwhile faith and are spending our lives in a worthwhile way. Christ, in fact, has been raised. And so Christians are not pitiable people with hope in this life only, but are actually enviable people with hope in both this life and the next. Christ, in fact, has been raised. And so the invitation goes to one and to all to join with Christians put their faith in Christ alone and enjoy with us that hope for the rest of this life and for the life to come.